Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Debt's Docile Subjects, and my guest is poet and scholar Jackie Wang, who's written an important book of essays called Carceral Capitalism. opening song is the title track from Archie Shep's 1972 album, Attica Blues, based upon prisoners' demands for better living conditions and political rights. The Attica prison uprising was one of the most well-known and significant uprisings of the prisoners' rights movement. On September 9, 1971, two weeks after the killing of black guerrilla family co-founder and Black Panther party member George Jackson at San Quentin State Prison, 1,281 of the Attica prison's approximately 2,200 inmates rioted and took control of the prison, taking 42 staff hostage. After four days of negotiations, Governor Nelson Rockefeller ordered the state police to take control of the prison. When the uprising was over, at least 43 people were dead, including 10 correctional officers and employees and 33 inmates. Attica Blues insists, through the powerful performance of singer Joe Armstead, that every man should walk the earth on equal condition, that every child should do more than just dream on a star, that hunger, death, and strife should cease, and that we should put an end to war. The violent foundation of U.S. freedom and white safety often goes unnoticed because that violence has been structurally invisible or, when visible, often considered legitimate, such as the violence carried out by police and prisons. And the invisibility of violence allows white Americans to imagine themselves as innocent and to understand crime and punishment as matters of individual morality rather than as key elements of racialized population control. In her book of essays, Carceral Capitalism, poet and scholar Jackie Wang confronts mass incarceration in the U.S. by delving into the processes that feed into and maintain the prison system and shows how supposedly race-neutral technologies, credit scoring, data mining, law enforcement software, justify and continue long-standing racist policies, providing them with the veneer of scientific legitimacy. These practices rationalize expropriation so that states, cities, and municipalities attempt to solve their budgetary dilemmas by building their local economies around policing and jails. Jackie Wang's carceral capitalism requires you to open your eyes and see. And now, debt's docile subjects on Interchain on WFHP. Jackie Wang, thanks for joining us on Interchange. 
Thank you for having me, Doug. Nice to talk to you. You too. Uh, Jackie, in my interchange dreams, you and I would be meeting here for seven Tuesdays to talk in depth about the chapters in your book. I'm going to read the titles to entice listeners. Racialized Accumulation by Dispossession in the Age of Finance Capital, Notes on the Debt Economy, Policing as Plunder, Notes on Municipal Finance and the Political Economy of Fees and Fines, Packing Guns Instead of Lunches, Biopower and Juvenile Delinquency. This is a story about nerds and cops, Predpol and Algorithmic Policing, The Cybernetic Cop, Robocop and the Future of Policing, Against Innocence, Race, Gender, and the Politics of Safety, and you end with the Prison Abolitionist Imagination, which you call a conversation. That's a good one at the end. That's very creative on your part. It taps into your poetry, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, so you're, uh, you list yourself uh, first as a poet on many of your author bios. And So what's a poet doing writing a kind of scholarly monograph on the racialized debtor's prison of late capitalism? That's a great question. I always joke that I'm a poet with an economist soul. <laughs> um, uh, what I tell people, because a lot in the poetry world, there are, you know, there are a lot of um, Marxist poets, and particularly on the West Coast and from the Bay Area. Um, but I, I consider myself a kind of political economy nerd, and I think about the debt economy um, and government debt. Um, and the state of the economy and the relationship between the economy and the prison system. Um, So in this book, I wanted to combine my varied interest to think about mass incarceration and the U.S. prison system on multiple registers. Um, So I decided to construct... um, a skeleton to accommodate this mixed genre work. So the way that I did it was um, I included the essays and the more dense and theoretical essays alongside um, more poetic and creative and autobiographical pieces. Um, So when it feels like um, the political economy is getting too technical or too dense, there's some easier reading to kind of ventilate the text. So I was thinking about readability and the construction of the text. Hmm. Um, But, you know, I I don't know if I consider myself a poet first, but there is a way in which being a poet... um, makes it so that the poetry part of your identity kind of dominates everything else. And I think perhaps it's because poets are so marginal in society. Very few people read poetry. It's mostly other poets who read poetry. So there's, um, I don't know, a kind of um, motivation to claim ownership of that title and to christen other people poets. So I also joke that I was christened a poet by other poets. Um, And in the book, I wanted to um, conclude with poetry because a lot of the topics that I'm writing about, which are topics that you discussed in the introduction, um, the debt economy, juvenile delinquency, predictive policing, um, municipal finance, and um, various dimensions of the prison system overall are quite um, depressing. And so when I got to the end of the book, um, I decided to kind of 
introduced the poetry at the end to um, have a little bit of a more inspiring send-off. I didn't want to drop the reader at a low point, um, and so I really wanted to think about the role of um, social imagination in political struggle mm. and the role of imagination in resisting the prison system. Mm, very good. Well, I'll admit that I chose Archie Shep tonight for the same reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it makes, yeah, and there are so many artists, not even just contemporary artists, who have historically responded to the prison system using art. And as I include in the conclusion of my book, um, a lot of the voices that I integrate in the conclusion are prisoners writing um, lyrical or poetic works from prison. And so I'm see myself as in conversation hmm. with those writers and activists. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest today is Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism, an investigation of the mechanisms of incarceration in the USA, a predatory state in the throes of late capitalism using the financial tools of debt creation to shackle black and brown bodies to prisons, often without walls. Uh, so you mentioned it's autobiographical frequently, Jackie. So uh, do you did you begin this work with your brother's arrest and incarceration? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I um, I was 16 when my brother got locked up, and I had actually, before this happened, had read Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete. That was, Angela Davis was one of the first um, black feminist thinkers that I read in high school um, because I identified as a feminist in high school, and so I read a lot of Bell Hooks and Angela Davis. So I was thinking about the prison system, and I didn't really intend at that point to go on to study the prison system. Um, it was something that kind of made itself present in my life through having an incarcerated sibling so when I was um, an undergraduate, I also um, did some local organizing and um, put on a conference that brought activists and theorists together. And one of the keynote speakers was Ashanti Alston, who was um, uh, a political prisoner for many years. He was in um, the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. And he was someone who I got to spend a bit of time with. This is probably when I was like 19 or 20. And then the under, as an undergrad, I, di I didn't, um, you know, really study prisons, although I, I did consider myself an activist and was involved with student organizing. Um, but then when I decided to apply to grad school, I mean, in the years between undergrad and grad school, which is about four years, I was doing a lot of writing and thinking about the prison system. So I actually wrote um, Against Innocence, which is one of the chapters in the book, when I was just living as a freelance writer in Baltimore. Um, and Semiotext had asked me to do 
a book with them, and I initially wanted to write a book about revolutionary loneliness. So there were some thematic um, similarities between carceral capitalism and the initial book plan, but that was mostly focused on um, mostly black and brown women revolutionaries from the 60s and 70s and how they coped with the collapse of their revolutionary dreams and the reactionary period, Mm. um, where many people who were black radicals were either assassinated or sent to prison. Mm -hmm. And so that was the initial idea for the book, and I just kind of set it aside because when I started grad school, um, I didn't really have enough time to think about putting a book out, and then eventually I I just realized um, I had written these essays about prison that I never published anywhere, and I was thinking a lot about the debt economy, because I was reading many other semiotext titles that are about, like, um, there's a title called The Making of the indebted man and the violence of finance capital. These were all books that um, I was reading and thinking about, but um, much of that discourse is coming from Europe and didn't really think very explicitly about race and how race mediates the debt economy. And so I wanted to write specifically about the U.S. context thinking about the way in which debt mediates uh, or race mediates the debt economy and then thinking about um, how the prison system is creating another debt economy, which is criminal justice debt. And this is something that's not necessarily new, but um, has intensified in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Right, right. Um, briefly, uh, before we go to break, uh, one of the things that you point out in terms of your brother's sentencing is that he's a juvenile at the time, and uh, uh, he's got, uh, he was uh, sentenced to juvenile, uh, what, life without parole, and that's uh, a yeah. unique sentencing uh, for the world. The U.S. is the only country that does that? Yes. Yeah, so um, mandatory juvenile life without parole since my brother was initially sentenced was deemed um, unconstitutional um, in the Miller versus Alabama Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court case. But that leaves open the possibility for discretionary juvenile life without parole. So a lot of people think that we've eradicated juvenile life without parole, and um, the Miller case is held up as this great victory, but it really didn't change very much besides the fact that people who got mandatory juvenile life without parole were, in most states, eligible for a resentencing hearing. Um, But during the resentencing hearing, they could be given juvenile life without parole. Right. They could just be taken taken back and resentenced. Um, yeah. Yeah, discretionarily, as you say. Let's take a break right now. Here's one from Archie Shep, uh, again, from Attica Blues. This is STEAM, Part 1. Stay with us for more with Jackie Wang on carceral capitalism when Interchange returns on WFHB. Calmly as we will be, will be 
soft as the rain and sweet as in the pain a star gleaming bright as fire in the night a whenever I think of When I'm flying high, feel like an eagle in the sky. Someone calmly as we will be. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism. Uh, in the beginning, we talked about uh, uh, your brother being uh, incarcerated uh, as a teenager and getting a juvenile life without parole sentence um, and talking about how you got involved in trying to think about debt and racialized debt in particular in, in uh, economies that are racialized in this country in particular, especially uh, trying to understand a lot of the theories about these things that were written in Europe in particular and how it's very different to uh, approach some of these things in the U.S., which has a unique history of, of uh, an enslaved population, uh, uh, as well as, I suppo- suppose, uh, a history of dispossession of indigenous peoples as well. One of the things you point out is a distinction or a way to think about those two groups as uh, ways to understand how capitalism, uh, I guess, uh, accumulates uh, racialized accumulation of, of, uh, of capital. Yeah, so I consider myself um, being a part of an intellectual tradition that thinkers like Cedric Robinson and Robin Kelly are a part of, and these are specifically people who are trying to think about racial capitalism. So thinking about the way in which not only is capitalism racialized, but things like um, the dispossession of native land and slavery are preconditions for the existence of capitalism. So any analysis of capitalism that doesn't include some kind of analysis of race, in my opinion, is inadequate. Hmm. And... um, 
This is um, an analytic that I found particularly useful, so the analytic being racial capitalism, for thinking about the prison system. And this is something that I've also been thinking about in other contexts outside the U.S., because there's a way in which the prison system um, is often racialized, but the racial dynamics don't um, map on to the racial schemas of the United States. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, um, for example, Canada, which is a place that I um, gave some talks um, a few months ago, I was talking with local activists, and we were talking about the particular history in Canada and how in um, rural parts of Canada, it's mostly Native American, the prison population whereas um, urban centers still have disproportionately um, black representation Hmm. in prisons. And this is something that I've been thinking about. um, Also, um, native dispossession and the relationship between native dispossession and the emergence of the prison system in the U.S. as well, because prisons are so... um, intimately tied to the history of slavery that I did focus on anti-black racism Mm -hmm. in my book, Um, but I I do um, consider myself, you know, in conversation and influenced by thinkers who are thinking specifically about prisons and settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting thing to take a look at the two as a way to kind of get your bearings in in some of the terminologies, right? So uh, it's easy enough to think about dispossession, right? You say um, the um, settler uh, colonialists, as you say, the white Northern Europeans, perhaps uh, uh, dispossessed natives of land, uh, we did a show last week on the Red Meat Republic and how uh, the cattle ranchers and the industry of beef served as a nice uh, rationale for dispossessing natives of their lands as well. Um, but one of the things that you point out, too, is the distinction of sort of a dispossession or expropriation of the or uh, excuse me, uh, appropriation of of the of the black body as well. So one, yeah. in a sense, uh, you dispossess of land, the other you dispossess of their own body. Right, yes, exactly. Yeah, and there and it's not as, you know, neat or categorical right. that because they're um we're Native American and this is, you know, um a topic that Kelly Hernandez has explored in her work when she writes about um the history of LA and the penal history of Los Angeles and specifically how um jails were used as a tool of dispossession, Mm. so rounding up Native Americans and then using Native labor to construct the infrastructure of the cities and the jails Mm. themselves. So it's it's not necessarily, um, you know, there's this mode of expropriation on the one hand and this expropriation on the other hand. Um, But... um, since I'm also, I consider myself um, an African-Americanist, um, my discipline is African-American studies, I'm trying to think specifically about the links between um, slavery and the prison system. Mm-hmm. And this isn't necessarily fully reflected in the book, but in work I've done, 
um, outside of the book, thinking about um, the relationship between plantations in the South and the prison system as it exists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange on WFHB. My guest today is Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism, published by the MIT Press in their Semiotext Intervention series. Uh, so, uh, in some ways, uh, you were talking earlier, and I think we used in the introduction the, the term white safety, uh, carceral capitalism uh, seems to, like you could probably change the name of the book to white safety. Um, mm-hmm. um, and it's important in, in some ways that, that I think we lose track of these, these things sometimes. Now, your book doesn't, but in this conversation, I want to be careful that we don't lose track of the sort of propulsive nature of this idea of white safety when we talk about carceral capitalism, uh, the idea that it bleeds into every aspect of, of you know, of the, uh, our particular ways of living, of our entertainments, of, you know, the ways we talk about things, the, how we frame things. Uh, you know, you, you go through the history of sort of second wave feminism at one point and talk about safe spaces and how this uh, ramps up the actually the idea of anonymous rape stories and, you know, how these things are made use of by the particular dominant class to, to sort of create those, those prison communities. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So I was, um, and and that's speaking um, mostly to the chapter against innocence, which mm-hmm. was influenced by Afro pessimists, theorists, and activists. Um, and this is something that I, I feel like is more present um, in the discourse. This analysis of white safety, and particularly. Um, around kind of cell phone documentations of white people policing black people doing everyday things. Mm, mm-hmm, With mm-hmm. the case of Permit Patty right. and Barbecue Becky and all of these white people who, you know, take it upon themselves to act as an, ex- an extension of the police state and to police um, black life and black lives um, through, like, calling cops and trying to get black people who are, you know, might just be gardening into trouble. Um, and this is something that I feel like, you know, one way I, I think people have tried to cope with just how depressing um, these situations are is through making kind of mean mocking right. these people who are doing this, but I think it you know, it actually reveals something deep about, like, the white American psyche that these incidents keep happening, and there is a way in which they're irrational. So that was why I kind of had to um, use Afro-pessimism to think through the kind of libidinal life of anti-black racism. Mm, let's uh, let's deepen that a little bit, if you don't mind, Jackie. Afro-pessimism, I think you, you associate with Frank Wilderson, is that correct, in the book? And maybe give us a little bit more what that means. Yeah, so when I was living in Baltimore, um, I was, you know, friends with a, a local activist named Lawrence Grand Prix, and we both had an, imp- an interest in Afro-pessimism. We had long conversations about politics and Afro-pessimism, which um, some might think they don't go together, um, but there are activists who are Afro-pessimists. But it's, uh, I think it's Afro-pessimism, 
you know, I think was popularized by Frank Wilderson, um, who is a professor at UC Irvine, um, who um, got a PhD in rhetoric at Berkeley and also taught in South Africa and was a part of the ANC in the 90s. And he, um, I think, actually seeing the co-optation of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa made him extremely pessimistic about the possibility of doing politics on what he calls the terrain of civil society, so trying to operate within, you know, kind of liberal channels Mm -hmm. um, to make some kind of social change, and he saw um, all action necessarily feeding this anti-black apparatus, and he has a pretty damning critique of coalition politics, which I think is useful if you um, don't necessarily integrate it in a way where you think that it's pointless to do any kind of coalition (laughs) politics. Um, But he's someone who's in conversation with um, Jared Sexton, and there are other thinkers who don't explicitly identify as Afro-pessimists but are associated with Mm Afro-pessimism. So my Mm. personal favorite Sadia Hartman um, and Horton Spillers. Um, But they're all thinking uh, about anti-blackness on um, a more kind of psychological or libidinal register and um, critiquing the way in which doing a certain kind of politics can be co-opted or channeled to to feed the anti-black machine. Well, it does seem like we can talk about that on uh, with capitalism as well, right? That there's any activity that can be turned to capitalism's profit-centered, you know, uh, profit motive, and and it seems like uh, on the field of play, liberalism does tend to uh, co-opt these particular modes. These are reformist ideas generally rather than revolutionary ideas. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that when we return from another break. This is Blues for Brother George Jackson, another one off of Archie Shepp's Attica Blues from 1972, a response to the violent suppression of the Attica prison uprising of September 1971. Stay with us for more on Interchange.
Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas in depth, stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And support for WFHB also comes from The Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Stay tuned as we return to Interchange, right here on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism. Before the break, we were talking about Afro-pessimism. Uh, Jackie, can I ask real quick, is, is how is this different from something like uh, Marcus Garvey and uh, kind of Back to Africa movement? Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's certainly many of the thinkers that I'm influenced by, um, kind of, some of them had like Pan-Africanist uh, phases, um, mm-hmm. but... Um, well, you do have a lot of Du Bois in your book. So, yeah, du Bois, yeah. is, he's, he actually had, bas- he like kind of died a Pan-Africanist. He right. had basically every political position um, under the sun. So he, was, he started <laughs> out with... We had a long life, right? Yeah, he yeah. started out as a liberal and got more radical <laughs> as he <laughs> aged, which is, you know, the opposite of the usual right, right, trajectory. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, but I do think um, people who are thinking specifically um, about um, Africa and, and specifically the underdevelopment of Africa, so Walter Rodney, um, these are all people who mm-hmm. definitely have informed my work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's jump in. Uh, there's a little piece here I'm going to read from the book, um, and we can go from there and try and get involved in or try to understand parasitic governance and things of that nature. Uh, you, okay. write, you, know, you write, what we see happening in Ferguson and other cities around the country is not the creation of livable spaces, but the creation of living hells. When people are trapped in a cycle of debt, it can also affect their subjectivity and how they temper temporal inhabit the world by making it difficult for them to imagine and plan for the future. What psychic toll does this have on residents? How does it feel to be routinely dehumanized and exploited by the police? That's from your book. Uh, So this is a good example or one of the many examples we have of communities that are policed in such a way that they they create a, 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 I assume, a kind of a psychological uh, deprivation almost. You know, this is not freedom. This is not opportunity. This is not the ability to live in your place anymore. And it's not just uh, debt. It's not just finances, right? It's it's people's mental capacities as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, that's why I kind of ended with that discussion in that chapter, because it was mostly about the inner workings of municipal finance and basically the loss, how the loss of um, revenue from sales tax and property taxes um, created fiscal crises in municipalities around the country. Um, 
the case of Ferguson, um, I think, got the most press, but it happened in in many other municipalities as well, where um, the police were using um, writing tickets and fees and fines as a way to generate revenue mm. to fill those budgetary gaps. Mm. Let's let me let me interrupt real quick and just try to walk uh, into that sort of uh, timeline of of how. Uh, municipalities were failing and that, you know, so in, in a sense, uh, obviously budgets for cities were failing. There were no, there was no particular money, although, of course, as you, as you know, police always fund themselves. Um, but right. uh, the, uh, the, the fact is that it, if we can jump to, I guess, Philando Castile as an example, a man who was murdered by police uh, prior to that point had been stopped by police like 52, 57 times right. um, for being black. Yes. And I assume yes. find many of those times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is something that if you think about it on one level, it's like, well, that's terrible that the, you know, police are, are um, you know, fulfilling these kind of fiscal or budgetary gaps um, by writing these excessive tickets. Um, but it's it's much more than that in terms of um, the atmosphere that it creates for people who are mm-hmm. living in places that are hyper police. So um, there were people in Ferguson who didn't want to leave their house, uh, their houses because they were afraid of getting hit with tickets, um, and being ensnared in a cycle of debt and criminal justice debt makes it hard to plan for the future, not only because showing up to court can disrupt someone's life. You know, they have to miss work or find someone to take care of their kids. Um, But it also creates a situation where um, there is, you're perpetually trying to get out of a hole and not really going anywhere um, because of the debt compounding over time. And so, you know, there were all kinds of schemes created where when someone was ensnared in the system, it ended up generating more revenue through um, the stacking of fees and fines. Mm. Um, so I was, yeah, also interested on the psychological toll. And this, and as a millennial, I think about the psychological toll of debt um, a lot. And I, yeah, yeah, you know, I have like tons of medical debt and bad credit or whatever. But um, this is something that is, is very common for mm. not only, um, you know, poor people in the U.S., but, you know, millennial. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism. Uh, Jackie, so one of the things you point out throughout is the way that um, that this is a kind of shift in governance, right? So moving from the welfare state, um, I guess, uh, on through the debt uh, state, but into this predatory space as well, where the state itself is is um, preying on its wor- uh, its lowest uh, or its least well off 
uh, citizens to but balance its budgets, to support whatever projects it has and things of that nature. Um, you know, wh- how, how does this go anywhere else? I mean, <laughs> this seems to me the end of the road for how the state manages people. These are, again, people we have to, at this point, call surplus population as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's <laughs> two types of responses that I can give. There's, um, you know, okay, well, it seems to me that capitalism is not, working for people and we've also seen you know inequality um being at the highest level it's been at in the united states Mm -hmm. um since the gilded age since like laissez-faire capitalism pre-depression pre-fdr um so you know we see that capitalism is not delivering on its so-called promise to bring um, prosperity to the masses. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm very cynical about the possibilities of, of making change within capitalism. But when I also think about what economists are saying now, it's pretty interesting because some economists have identified um, the lack of support to states and municipalities being one of the culprits of the slowness of the post-2008 economic crisis. Um, And so they're saying we should implement automatic triggers to, um, you know, redistribute money to states and municipalities, because what happens is a few years after the crisis, um, when they run out of, you know, their... um, their uh, budget that they've set, their rainy day fund or whatever, Mm -hmm. then what happens is um, states start to fire people, public education spending gets cut, public sector workers are fired, benefits are scaled back, and um, even mainstream economists are saying that this is a drag on the economy because... And their whole analysis is it reduces the buying power of consumers. Mm. Um, all we have left yeah. are consumers. I said all we have left are consumers, no producers anymore anyway. Yeah, uh, that's, that's how they frame right, things. Right. Well, the issue, um, you know, obviously of places like Flint where, uh, you know, the city was taken over by financial managers and basically um, poisoned to death or poisoned to a lifetime of disability, uh, which uh, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I th- and it's an, uh, obviously another example of how this operates in a, a in this particular kind of community of black and brown people. There is uh, the prison of Flint. There's there's no right. there's no necessary walls there. Flint is just a giant prison. Yeah, and this is something that I've been thinking about because I. Um, wrote a book with a group of scholars who uh, go by the name The Precarity Lab. They're based out of the University of Michigan, and we were thinking a lot about Flint and um, the ways, the way in which, um, you know, kind of technocratic solutionism is held up as the answer to the problem of Flint. Um, 
and also thinking about um, disability and this new form of governance that we have now because, you know, one thing that we see happening, and there's a really great book that I just finished called Automating Inequality, which talks about how the automation of the welfare state is used as a pretext to actually dismantle Mm -hmm. the welfare state. So people are losing their benefits because states are experimenting with the implementation of of automatic systems that will determine welfare eligibility or Medicaid and Medicare eligibility, and that becomes a way of actually reducing the right. number of people who receive those benefits. But also, Jackie, that's just uh, that's just science and math, and it's, it's technology. It's going to be neutral, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to do the right thing. Well, that's what people say, but <laughs> then we see, you know, since the state is incentivized to cut costs right. and automating... Um, automating welfare um, can be a way of cutting costs because you also remove the caseworker as well. And so there's no human advocating on behalf of people who are trying to navigate this. No humans allowed to help, and they're actually not helping. There are no humans there to help anyway. That's another way that these things are particularly framed in in, in an egregious way. Um, It's time for our final break. This is Ballad for a Child from Attica Blues by Archie Shep. More with Jackie Wang on carceral capitalism when Interchange returns. Stay with us. a child on this land not a child not a man Mm, branches can grow free oh yeah Again and again and again. I don't know why I can't. A tree is a work of God.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Jackie Wang, author of a book of essays published by the MIT Press in their Semiotext Intervention series. Uh, we went to the break uh, talking about, uh, I guess, the way the municipalities uh, sort of uh, in budget crisis, et cetera, have, have you know, basically cut all services, uh, you know, cut education spending, things of that nature. Uh, one thing you point out, Jackie, though, is that generally police uh, and firefighters uh, are often not on the cutting block, and government turns into uh, a, a thing only uh, to actually police uh, police people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was um, something that um, actually I know someone who's kind of writing a dissertation on this topic, um, specifically the question of why um, during the period from you know the 70s to the present, um, you see, you know, basically almost total dismantling of organized labor across every sector except police and firefighters. Um, So they're the only, um, you know, corner of organized labor that seems to be thriving, but part of it is because of the, you know, function of specifically the police um, and the role, the structural role that they play in society and the fact that they can expropriate not only through fees and fines but also civil forfeitures from residents also kind of ensures their their material maintenance, um, Mm -hmm. their funding and budget um, can be maintained in an environment of fiscal austerity, and obviously the state and, you know, the may, uh, you know, a city's mayor or the state governance, like, they, politicians have an incentive to be on good terms with the police union. And this also, the police union can prevent investigations into, um, you know, police violence or police brutality, and really um, block um, any kind of justice from happening right, in response right. to police violence. So, uh, Jackie, uh, in our last segment, uh, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the disciplining nature of the of debt. Basically, you know, I think it's not a hard thing to understand. Uh, my own uh, debt or the debt you spoke of your 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 debt you you spoke of your debt earlier and how debt generally disciplines all of us as citizens right to to put our creditors first um there's a, a, I think I've quoted this before, but Emerson says somewhere in a very long, a long time ago that a man shouldn't have to put his creditors before other needs. But that's where we are. We live in a, in a world where, where creditors come first and your, your debt keeps you shackled in a very apolitical way. One, one hesitates to become political when you owe money. Right, exactly. And one way in which debt becomes compulsory is the fact that you need established credit to do things, mm-hmm. and, and whether it's renting an apartment, um, or in my case, I was rejected from renting a harp when I wanted to start learning the harp because they did a credit check, and mm. it didn't matter that I had saved up money because um, the way in which someone's responsibility is, ind- is indexed is through credit scoring. So when someone 
applies to a job, they have a FICO credit score, and they might also have some kind of um, e-score, they call that, which is private companies data mining data and scoring people based on data Mm -hmm. that they've privately collected. Um, now, Jackie, Jackie, you also, let me interrupt real quick just because uh, we're getting close, and I know that, that this is an important thing, credit scoring, things of this nature. We, you know, in the opening, we talk about how these also are uh, carceral uh, or uh, sort of are imbued with the racist policies that come from developing them in the first place, or they have assumptions okay. in place already. How, how is a credit score racist? How is, uh, how is data mining serving racist policies? Well, I mean, on you know, as we saw with the the um, 2008 housing market crisis, is mm-hmm. black borrowers were marked as high risk, right. um, and risk itself is racialized because of the associations people make with racialized groups. So mm-hmm. there's a way in which the the um, you know kind of PR facing um, you know, image of this practice was it was a form of economic inclusion, but it was actually predation because racialized subjects were put in a different category. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the the industry included um, black and brown um, purchasers in order to steal from them. Right. Exactly. That's very well said. It's beautiful. <laughs> Yes. worked worked so well. It's one of the things I said. It's clear. It was seemed clear to me. It was intentional uh, to steal all all the wealth that, that could have been or that was in black families. Right, it immediately went away. I don't know what the ridiculous percentage was. Uh, that you know, when in sort of looking at the harm that the 2008 financial cla- uh, crash did to black families in particular, but uh, comparing it to white families, it was like you know most white families manage this uh, uh, in a certain way. Black families like literally lost almost all their wealth. Right, exactly. It's kind of scary. You know, I, I, I know, again, we don't have a lot of time, but there's one thing I wanted to say because it annoys me to no end is that, you know, I'm frequently wanting to have villains. There are so many villains in this world, and it's it's hard for me not to want villains all the time. And I just want to note one particular villain, and we can we can put Bill Clinton in that uh, category all the time simply for the, the whole, you know, the whole re- um, the whole uh, whole way in which we um, uh, sort of reclassified the 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 black man as a super predator, uh, but this was a function of his his sort of taking on what was written up by one particular guy, John uh, Delulio De or Deulio De or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. who wrote an article about super predators. Uh, can you briefly sketch that? Yeah, John DeLulio was a political scientist who popularized the term super predator, which became this term that not only circulated in the media and public discourse, but other criminologists and political scientists um, picked up this term and were sounding the alarm about um, the so-called coming of the super predator, uh, which was, uh, you know, black and brown youth who were preemptively deemed to be criminal. So his um, whole academic argument for the for this coming crisis was based on a demographic 
analysis where he said that um, because there would be more black and brown youth in the coming years, that there would be a crime boom um, because that demographic commits crime at greater rates. This was his argument. Um, and this led to um, basically every state in the country passing legislation enabling things like the ability to try juveniles as adults and increasing sentences for crimes for juveniles. And I should also add, and this was something that came out when Hillary Clinton was running for president, um, Black Lives Matter protesters called her out on her use of the term super predator to support Bill Clinton's crime bill. Um, but I should also point out that um, mass incarceration increased under Bill Clinton more than it did any other president. Um, yeah. So the idea that conservatives built the carceral state is a myth. Right. Well, uh, it is true, and I, I, I know I need to, to lay that at his door as well, but it's just, you know, sometimes you these people sort of are behind the scenes of things, and they write these things, and then they, they have such successful lives, right? De Ulio is Frederick Fox Leadership Professor of Politics and Religion and Civil Society at Penn, I think. Uh, you know, he's just one of those guys that have been super successful and has, has harmed so many people with these kinds of, with the carceral imagination rather than the abolitionist imagination. And I'd like to talk to you again in the future, Jackie, if you don't mind, on that imagination, the abolitionist imagination. But sadly, I have to close the show. And that is our show. This is Quiet Dawn, a final cut from Archie Shep's impassioned album, Attica Blues. It's nine-year-old Wahida Massey who sings on this one. She's the daughter of Cal Massey who wrote this one for Shep. Thank you to Jackie Wang who joined us by phone tonight to discuss her book, Carceral Cap. Published by, excuse me, published in Semiotext Intervention Series for MIT Press. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Doug. Next time on Interchange, author Peter Leinbaugh joins me to discuss his new book, Red Round Globe Hot Burning. It's a tale at, of the crossroads of the commons and closure of love and terror and of race and class encompassing the American, French, Haitian, and failed Irish revolutions, the Anthropocene's birth amidst enclosures, war-making global capitalism, slave labor plantations, and factory machine production, and at the center of it all, a love story. Red Globe Hot Burning, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, I produce Interchange, and for the last time, Wes Martin is our executive producer and today's studio engineer. Thank you, Wes, for all your help making Interchange run smoothly over the last two years. I wish you luck and success in your future endeavors, my friend. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
Bismillah.